0: Turn to Amos chapter 5. As we left with chapter 4, it closed with a bang, sort of a note of finality. It would seem as if the Lord has taken away any hope for Israel to survive this invasion from Assyria. Uh, God will punish them for their iniquity. Uh, In the first 15 verses that we're going to look at here, God pleads with Israel to seek him so that judgment can be averted. And so let's dive in, and we will read verses 1 through 15. Again, the setting, Amos, um, a shepherd, as we're going to read in chapter 7, is, is really um, called by the Lord to the northern kingdom. But as we're going to ch- see in chapter 7, they don't, they don't want to hear any of it. They want him gone as soon as possible. So the first 15 verses is a future judgment on the nation of Israel. And again, this is before they would have been taken into captivity in anywhere between 710 and 722 B.C. The Assyrians came and took the northern ten tribes into captivity. Verse 1. Hear this word which I have taken up against you, this lamentational house of Israel, The virgin of Israel has fallen, she will rise no more. She lies forsaken on her land, and there is no one to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, The city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which goes out by a hundred shall be left with only ten. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel, nor enter Gilgal, nor pass over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it, with no one to quench it in Bethel. You who turn justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. He made the seeds and Orion. He turns the shadow of death into mourning and makes the day dark as night. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name, and he rains ruin upon the strong, so that fury comes from the fortress. They hate the one who rebukes in the gates, and they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. Therefore, because you tread down the poor, take grain taxes from him. Though you have built houses of hewn stone, yet you shall not dwell in them. You will have planted vineyards, but you shall not drink wine from them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. You afflict the just and take bribes. You divert the poor from justice as a gate. Therefore, the prudent keep silent at that time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you might live, so the Lord God of hosts will be with you. And as you have spoken, hate evil, love good, establish justice in a gate. And it may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. All right, let's just stop there. As we look at uh, these verses up up to verse 12, it's basically no hope. And the problem here is not so much idolatry, uh, but when I say what were the sins of Sodom, you'd probably think um, homosexuality. Well, the sins of Sodom, as it talks about them, were leisure of time and abundance and pride. And it doesn't even mention homosexuality. And the setting here as as we get into this is they're in kickback mode uh, they're they're enjoying life to the fullest, but to the extent that if when we read all the way through Amos, the number one gripe that he has with them was their complete indifference, the apathy, the mediocrity of the poor uh, and the needy uh, they not only did not. Um, verse 12, you, you divert the poor from justice at the gate. And all the way up to this time, the main thing that he's concerned with, uh, the Bible says, you know, if you if you say you're a Christian and, and you don't help somebody and you have the means to do so, and in other words, it's in your power to do it and you don't do it, the question is, how does the love of God dwell in you? Now, we'll be going to Luke 10, and talking about the Good Samaritan in a bit, but not, but not right here. So up to these verses, again, he's laying out. Um, these were his people. He called them to be different, to be a light, and not to be self-seeking, but to be servants and actually have compassion. Um, you know, we're we're seeing um, people with compassion coming out of the woodworks. With Irma. And, um, you know, it's heartbreaking watching some of the footage that you see on, on TV. And you, they're doing interviews with average Joes, but they're doing everything in their power to help people who've pretty much lost everything. So in verses 14, it's actually a plea. It might be, 14 and 15, it might be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. In other words, Amos says, it's a slim chance, but there is hope. Now Amos moves into another area, the warning of an approaching judgment, the day of the Lord. So from 16, we're switching gears, and it's actually um, a woe judgment. And that should immediately trigger the three woe judgments that we see uh, in the book of Revelation. So thus says the Lord God of hosts, There shall be wailing in the streets, and they shall say in the highways, Alas, alas! They shall call the farmer to mourning, and skillful, skillful lamenters to wailing. In all vineyards they shall be wailing, for I will pass through you, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord! For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be future tense, darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion met, and then he met a bear, or though he went into a house, leaned on its wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? It is not very dark. With it is very dark and no brightness in it. Uh, question: Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? I hate. I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me my burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I'm not going to accept them, nor will I regard your um, fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melodies of your stringed instruments. But let justice rule down like water, and righteousness like a mighty stream. In other words, just do what is right. Did you offer me sacrifice and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? You who uh, carried Skitkuth, your king, and Chingon, your idols, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves, therefore, in other words, because they were worshiping these other gods, and they did it continually, now we have a therefore. And again, whenever there's a therefore, you ask, what's it there for? And he says, therefore, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you into captivity beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God, is the Lord of hosts. Now, that would be Assyria, but in particular, the capital was Nineveh. Now, we're going to be studying Jonah pretty soon. And the Ninevites and the Assyrians were brutal. We read last week how they led them out by uh, putting a hook in their noses and leading them. And um, from here, uh, I'm going to have you turn to Second Kings chapter 17 and actually go back. And remember that the minor prophets are simply commenting, commentary, on actual events that happened during the time of the king's. I've said this often, but I'll repeat it. Um, Saul, 40 years. David, 40 years. Solomon, 40 years. Then there was a divided kingdom. Jeroboam took 10 of the tribes, and that they were called Israel, the 10 northern tribes. This who Amos is ministering to. They don't like it. They tell him to go home to Judah. And then... Um, Well, let's pick it up in verse five of chapter 2nd Kings 17, verse five. And the king of Assyria went throughout all the land and he went up to Samaria. This would be where Bethel would have been in the ninth year of Hosea. So here it is. The king of Assyria took Samaria and carried away Israel to Assyria, Nineveh, and placed them in Hala and by the harbor, the river of Gozan. In the city of the Medes, all right, we can go back to um, Amos and Hosea, picking it up in chapter six. we have the second woe now again your your mind should be clicking woes we have a one woe judgment now we have a second woe judgment, and um, we'll We'll be going to Revelation and, and just connect some dots here. One of the main thing as we teach through the Bible is the importance of seeing the Bible prophecies that are here. Like tonight, there's going to be one prophecy of the time that Jesus was on the cross in the middle of nowhere. And one of the points that I've been trying to make is that's not unusual. It's the rule rather than the exception. You're reading and all of a sudden, bam, here's one verse. Um, and you can have a thousand years between that verse and the next one, and you'll you 'll see it tonight when it actually refers to the the um, three hours that started at noon. Well, that comes from the book of Amos all right, uh, chapter six verse one. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion. So the message here when we get to this one, um, notice that he 's not just talking now to the ten northern tribes but he He, Zion, would be the southern two tribes. So now he's ministering to both of them. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria. Uh, Notable persons and chief nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Kalni and see, and and from there go to Hamath uh, the Great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. That would be where the Gaza Strip is today. Uh, we turned it uh, over to the uh, Arabs, and they turned it over to Hamas, and we've been having trouble ever since. He says, are you, are you better than these kingdoms, or is your territory greater than our territory? Woe to you who put off the day of doom, who causes the seed of violence to come near who lie on beds of ivory stretched out like couches, you eat lambs from the flock and, and calves from the midst of the stalls, who chant the sound of string instruments and, and invent for yourself musical instruments like David, who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourself with the best ointment. But you're not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore they shall now go captives, As the first of the captives, and those who recline at banquets shall be removed. The Lord God has sworn by Himself, the Lord God of hosts says, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his palaces. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all that is in it, and then it will come to pass that if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when a kinsman of the dead with one will burn the bodies, pick up the bodies to take them out of the house. He will say to the one inside the house, Are there any more with you? And then someone will say, None. And he will say, Well, hold your tongue, for we dare not mention the name of the Lord. So again, no care. read it down through 14, no care for the poor. For behold, the Lord gives a command... He will break the great house in bits and the little houses into pieces. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into gall and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice over Lodibar, who say, Have we not taken uh, Karnam for ourselves by our strength? But behold, I will rise, rise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, and again, when it says Israel, it's interchanged with um, uh, Bethel, ten northern tribes. Um, he's speaking to the north once again. For thus says the Lord God of hosts, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the valley of Arabah. All right, a little rabbit trail here. I want to get through all of our chapters, so I've got to be careful with my um, getting a little bit uh, sidetracked. Just turn back to Joel quickly. Joel chapter 2. And Joel's prophecies, again, is twofold. He's using the example of locust, real locust, that uh, everything before them is green, everything behind them is brown. Um, But again, he'll jump into the future and if you're in Joel chapter two, verse two, to B, it talks about the day of the Lord. Now this is still future. I believe it's extremely close. One of the guys that, um, at the prophecy conference, I don't know who said it, but you know, we're just waiting for somebody to, to strike that match, and that's going to be all of it. That's all it's going to take. And all of a sudden, you, you have the beginning of his Ezekiel 38 and uh, the stage is set we went through great detail laying out how everything is in place Russia's motive for being there I ran uh, building an airstrip at a chemical factory that their brand new Israeli F-35s that we just sold them I really wanted to see one at the EAA they had one there but they wouldn't let us go near it <laughs> and uh In case you don't know what an F-35 is, it's the latest and greatest. And um, just like we did um, in Iraq, we took out their nuclear plant. I can't remember, that was, what? Dylan wrote a song about it called Neighborhood Bully, (laughs) about taking out that um, nuclear, nuclear base. Well, here we jump, and verse... Three, they're called locusts. A uh, people come great and strong, like the whom has never been, nor will there ever be such after them, even for many successive generation. Verse four says their appearances like that of horses. Uh, it tells us in verse six that people will wither in pain, and their faces will be drained of color. And um, in verse twenty one, it says, "For the day of the Lord is great and very." De- Uh, very great and terrible, who can endure it? All right, here's where one of the things as we go through the Minor Prophets. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 9. And what Joel is prophesying is yet to happen. Revelation chapter 9 is the fifth trumpet judgment. The book of Revelation is divided into three sections. The key to the book of Revelation is Revelation 1, verse 19, where Jesus appears to John. He says, John, write the things that you've seen, chapter 1. Write the things that are, present tense. That would be the church age. You, you and I are in that period of time. And if you'll notice chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation, they're all in red letters. Then, beginning at verse 4 of Revelation, it begins with the Greek phrase, metatonta, after these things. After what things? After the things of the church. Uh, No more red letters. Read chapters 4 and 5, and you you find that there's a song being sung that only a born-again Christian can sing. You have redeemed us to our Father, and you've made us kings and priests, and only the church can can sing that song. Where are they? They're in heaven. They've been translated before Revelation 6 is when the Antichrist comes on the scene. Well, the third division of the book of Revelation is write the things that you've seen, one, write the things that are present tense, church age, that's us right now, and then write the things that are after the church age. So what Joel is referring to in chapter 2 is a great and terrible day of the Lord. There's going to be creatures that have never been seen before. If you're taking notes, Jude, verse 6, says that there are demonic, well, he calls them fallen angels who did not keep their proper domain. He has them reserved in a bottomless pit for the great day of judgment. Now, demons are a reality of Jesus' ministry. The disciples cast demons out. But evidently, as there's a hierarchy in the angelic realm, Evidently, there are some that are only going to be let loose to do harm for a short period of time. Now, the first time I read, read the book of Revelation, I thought this is the most far out thing I've ever read in my entire life. But I believed it. And what gives this credibility, what I'm about to read here, is that Joel talked about it in the Old Testament, about these locusts creatures that have never been seen before and will never be seen again. All right? The fifth trumpet. Uh, the angel sounded, verse 1, and I saw a star fall from heaven to the uh, to the earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit has to be the center of the earth because once you get to the center of the earth, you're either going up or down or around. Then you're going, that's why it's in the middle. And... Um, the demon locust that Jesus cast out of the demon-possessed man in the land of the Gadarenes, remember what the demon said to Jesus? Don't cast us into the abuso. They knew, don't torment us before the time. So they're conscious of this place, and they didn't want to go there. And so Jesus cast them into the swine. He was killing two birds with one stone. They should not have been raising pigs in the first place. It's not kosher. And um, and he got rid of them. Now, when we're in Israel, about a month from now, we will stop the boat on the Sea of Galilee. And I will show you an A spot. There is only one place on the whole Sea of Galilee that's going to happen, where there's a cliff that goes right down into the water. So it's an A site. Talk about the Bible coming to life. It really does. So... The angel of the bottomless pit is named for us in verse 11. In the Hebrew, it's Abaddon, but in the Greek, his name is Apollyon, one of many names of Lucifer, the liar, the father of lies, the murderer. He is the one who is the king. The Proverbs tell us, for no reason at all, that locusts have no king. What's up with that? Why Why would we need that information? Well, when you get to Revelation chapter 9... And we find locusts who have a king. All right, let's read on. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke rose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as scorpions on the earth have power. Uh, they were commanded not to harm the grass or the earth. Well, that's what locusts do. Or any green thing or own... Or nor tree, but only those men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads, that was given in revelation seven with one hundred and forty four thousand they were sealed uh, they were They were not given authority to kill them but to torment them for five months, and their torment was the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man in those days. men will seek death and not find it. And they will desire to die, and death will flee from them. And the shape of the locusts was like like um, horses prepared for battle, and on their head were crowns of something like gold. Their faces were faces of men. Their hair was like woman's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, And they had sting in their tails, and they had power was to hurt men for five months. And they had a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, in Greek it's Apollyon. Now, the reason we're here is connecting woe. This was one of the woes. It says, one woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming. There's not many times in the scriptures where the terminology woe is used. And when it is used, it is meaning something really, really bad is about to happen. So as we take it in context, um, again, it's so important to study the Old Testament. Because when, if I would read something like this, I'd say, are you crazy? No, um, Joel actually gives clarification. Um, Men's face will turn pale. In other words, all the blood will rush out of their face. And um, they'll be in pain uh, with these creatures. Joel prophesies about it. We're studying about it as we make our way through the scriptures. It is yet to be fulfilled during the great tribulation period called the great day of the Lord. Amos has been saying, You guys don't want to look forward to that day. It's not a good day. It's a dark day. All right, so let's go back. We just finished up chapter um, 6. And again, the main point here is his concern is their lack of care, their indifference um, towards anybody else except themselves. Uh, go back and, and verse four seems to indicate um, uh, stretching out on your couches and beds of of ivory uh, it appears uh, and then eating uh, lambs and calves and so on it, it illicit sex and gluttony are the two sins that are mentioned here, and these are simply sins of the flesh and um, when Rome did fall according to Gibbon, in his decline and fall of the Roman Empire, mentions that the destruction of the family was one of the important reasons that Rome fell. Rome was never conquered. It fell from its immorality, entertaining the people, passing out the bread in the Colosseum, and having gladiators just in a form of entertainment. And um, they had that same sort of Live off the government lifestyle. My Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. <laughs> they were talking about it tonight on the news about why aren't there some, all these jobs are available. Why aren't people taking them? And one of the answers was why work when you don't have to and the government will give it to you for free. That's one of the most honest things I've heard on the tube for a long time. <laughs> you don't work, you don't eat. It's that simple. And yet... Uh, especially this generation's been programmed. Hey, sign up, sign up, take advantage uh, of it. And um, uh, the same thing was happening um, in Israel. Was this indifference? All right, now you can go to Luke 10 and um, let's make personal application where I want to tie in the teachings of our Lord with not being indifferent And this is well known. When you read, anyway, the woman at the well, she was a Samaritan. And the Lord said, we have to go through Samaria. In those days, you didn't go. You went down to the Jordan River Valley, and then you went up to the Galilee. You didn't go through Samaria because the Samaritans and the Jews had nothing in common. By the way, this is how Samaritans came to be. When the Assyrians did take the ten northern tribes in 710 B.C., they intermarried. Some of them stayed in the land of Israel. So they're half Assyrian and half Israeli. And they later became known, because they were from Samaria, that's what we're talking about here in Bethel, they were called Samaritans. But that's where Samaritans come from. They are half-breeds. And as a result... Um, you know, the woman at the well says, well, you're a Jew. What are you talking to me for? And we, you know we don't have dealings with each other. So here, the Lord always puts Samaritans in a good light, not a bad light. Verse 29 of chapter 10, and he wanted to justify himself. And he, the, the question was uh, how to have eternal life. Uh, love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and your strength and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. Verse 29, but he wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered and said, there was a certain man who went down from Jerusalem. Now, whenever you go to Jerusalem, You're always going either up to it or down from it. It always uses that phraseology because it's built on seven mountains, Mount Moriah. And a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. We'll be on that road. We'll go right past this spot. And thieves stripped him of clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down the road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He actually went to the other side of the road so he wouldn't have to go by him. Likewise, the Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, guys that um, we don't associate with, as he journeyed, came and where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him if I would sum up our our study um, in the Old Testament as we make our way through, this is a thing that the Lord is judging them for more than anything else. They had no compassion. They had no concern for anybody else except their lifestyle and living for themselves. But this guy, Samaritan, had compassion, and he went to him, bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine, and he set him on his animal and brought him to an inn, and they took care of him. And on the next day when he he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of this guy, and whatever more you need when I come again, I'll pay you. Uh, So which of these do you think was neighbor to him who fell among thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Here's a guy who wanted to justify himself. And so the Lord picks a Samaritan to be the good guy in the story. And and compassion, again, if it's in your ability to help somebody and you don't, then the Lord says, how is Jesus living in you? It, it, it proves the fact that you're walking with God or not. They weren't. Um, let's go back to chapter 7. They weren't, and as a result, this is the real re- reason that the Lord is bringing on the judgment. They were supposed to be a unique people that God called out of Egypt, which is a type of the world. The word church means called out ones. where to be separated. It uh, doesn't, doesn't mean we don't rub shoulders with people that aren't saved every day. Of course we do. But whatever your job is, and I say this quite often, it's Christian first and then fill in whatever you do for a living, okay? But primarily, you should be known as a Christian. Yeah, I got enough time. I've told this story, but it's sort of my favorite, so I'll tell it again. Uh, it goes way back when we were uh, putting on this edition, one of, the, one of the elders in the church worked. For, work for a carpet company. And uh, he was always telling people about Jesus and and all that. And I had to go buy some carpet. So I thought, well, I'll go buy the carpet where my, one of the guys in the church where, where he works. Give them the business. And so I went in and we started talking about my friend who worked there and he started rolling his eyes. Well, that, that, that guy, all he does is talk about Jesus. Uh, but he's the best worker I got, and I can't let him go. Implying he wanted to. But what he said, he's the best worker I have. And and I can't let him go. I didn't tell him who I was. <laughs> and I just thought, I'll tell my friend later. Bought, bought the carpet from him. And I've been telling this story for years, and I could tell whole, lots of them. And uh, you should be known for that guy, yeah, maybe they don't like you because you're a Christian um, at your job. But uh, let it be that um, they can't get rid of you because you're, you're the best worker they got. And we should never be known for just the opposite. The Bible teaches you, wherever Paul went, he says, I didn't come at your money. I don't want your money. I want you. He says, I worked with my own hands wherever I went so that it wouldn't be a cost or a burden to you. And, you know, what we see in the church today, gang, we're swimming upstream, because it's just the opposite. It's your best life now. Tithe here and watch your seed faith grow. What's that all about? Well, that's all about you. Getting what? More stuff. For what? i got so much stuff, I can't believe. the word. Whoever invented the word stuff was brilliant, because it encompasses everything that we don't need, but we got four of each of them, right? Stuff. Chapter 7. Thus the Lord God showed me, behold... Okay, as we get into chapter 7, chapter 7 opens the third and last major division of the book of Amos. These final three chapters contain visions of the future. So 7, 8, and 9. Thus... The Lord God showed me, behold, he formed locust swarms at the beginning of the late crop. Indeed, it was the late crop after the king's mowing. So the king got the first one, then he allowed the locusts to come in. And so it was, when they had finished eating the grass of the land, that I said, O Lord God, forgive, I pray. O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning It shall not be, said the Lord. Then there was a vision of fire. Uh, Thus the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God called for a conflict by fire, and it consumed the great deep and devoured the territory. Then I said, O Lord God, I pray. O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. Now the plumb line. Then he showed me, behold, the Lord stood on a wall, made a plumb line, every carpenter knows what a plumb line is, I'll explain it in a bit, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. And then he said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. In other words, he's going to measure them. I will not pass by them anymore. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel will be laid waste. And I will rise with sword against the house of Jeroboam. Now, there was Jeroboam, the very first one, that rebelled, but this is in reference to um, Jeroboam II. We find the plumb line used many places in the word of God. In Jeremiah 31, behold, the day comes, says the Lord, that the city shall be built to the Lord from the tower of Hananel unto the gate of the corner, and the measuring line shall yet go forth over against it upon the hill Garib, and shall compass about to Goath. The measuring line is the plumb line. If you please, every time that you have a vision of the plumb line in scriptures, Isaiah, Zechariah, it means that God is getting ready to judge. In the book of Daniel, the prophet of God said to King Belshazzar, thou art weighed in the balance and found wanting, measurement. You've been weighed, Belshazzar, and you found, you come up short. When God begins to... Uh, to measure either length or height or width, you can be sure that the people have not measured up to God's requirement and judgment is the thing which he has in mind. Amos does not intercede for the people again, realizing that God's judgment is just. So when we get to the plumb line, it changes. And now they've had it up to here. Remember, he's been in Bethel and he's been ministering to the people of Bethel in the palace. So, picking it up here, this is really the heart of the book of Amos that helps us understand the book and what this is really all about. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, but not the priest of the Lord, he's, he, they're worshiping false gods, sent to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all of his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will surely be led, led away captive from their own land. Well, this is just like Jeremiah. What did he do? He ministered to them that they were going to be taken by Nebuchadnezzar into captivity, and he did it his whole life. And nobody wanted to hear a word of it. They liked the stuff the false prophets were saying. Ah, don't worry about Jeremiah. only good is going to come. Don't worry, you're going to be coming back from... from, You won't be going into captivity. Just don't worry about it. Well, Jeremiah was the true prophet, and false prophets were just that. So now here's Amos not telling them what they want to hear. They say that... uh, We're going to go into captivity, and you're going to die. Then Amaziah said to Amos, get out of here. Get out of Dodge. Flee to the land of Judah. So that would be south. "Uh, There eat your bread, and there prophesy. But never again prophesy at Bethel. For it is the king's sanctuary, and it is his royal residence. Again, opulence. And uh, he's telling them that judgment was imminent. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a herdsman and a tender of sycamore fruit. And then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. He didn't go to the universities in Jerusalem, he didn't look who, who was the chiefest and smartest of the Pharisees with their degrees and everything and so on and so forth. No. Like David, he, he, he found a man who had a heart for God. And he was looking. The, the word tells us that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro, searching the whole earth, looking for a man that he can trust, that won't take the credit or won't take the glory. He called Moses. Moses says, I don't want the job. I can't talk. (laughs) Try Aaron. He's a good speaker. Aaron's a great speaker. You should should really be talking to him. And he had a speech impediment. And the Lord says, don't worry about it. I'll do the speaking for you. And so we have Gideon. And uh, Gideon was hiding in a wine press when the angel of the Lord appeared to him. And he says, well, don't call me. I'm just not... I'm just not the prophetic type, or the one to be a judge for the land, or, or even Jeremiah, uh, called from his his youth, and and um, interesting that God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. That way, guess what? Guess who gets the credit? Well, they were looking at they were looking at Amos, and Amos is just saying, "Look, I'm a herdsman." I'm a nobody, but the Lord said, go. And so now it's a matter of of just being obedient to what the Lord said. Verse 16, now therefore, because the Lord had called me to do this, now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel, and do not spout out against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a harlot in the city, Your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided by a survey line. You shall die in a defiled land, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from its own land. When this happened, when Assyria came down, they did make the woman into harlots. The sons and daughters were destroyed. They were cruel. And that's why Jonah didn't want to go there. He hated the Ninevites because they were that bad. I don't preach to those guys. You're a gracious God. You just might have mercy on them and save them. So he took off for Tarshish. And the Lord had to deal with him in his own way. You really believe that he was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights? Well, I know Jesus did. Jesus is the one who quoted it. He says, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So evidently, Jesus believes it. Easy for him to believe it. He made the whale and Jonah. He made both of them. So we find that um, the Assyrians came down, and the old priest of the golden calf, remember, there was two golden calves. One was in Bethel, one was in a place that's going to be a surprise when we get to Israel, the other place. And um, they were taken into captivity, and the, the words of the prophet were fulfilled. Chapter 8. This is the fourth vision. It takes in the entire eighth chapter of this book. It's important to get the meaning of this vision because that will help us with the interpretation of a passage that comes later on. Again, absolutely essential to study the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Otherwise, you can't make the connections with uh, the fulfillment of the prophecies that are new. All right, so let's read 1 through 8, and we'll stop at 9. Thus says, the Lord God showed me, behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And so I said, A basket of summer fruit. And then the Lord said to me, The end has come upon my people, Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. And the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day, says the Lord God. Many dead bodies everywhere. They shall throw them out in silence. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fall. Reoccurring of his main um, indictment against Israel. Saying, when will the new moon be passed that we can sell grain again? Well, when we're in Israel, everything really does shut down on the Sabbath. Unless you're living in, in the Arab quarter, they don't, of course, observe the Sabbath. They stay open. But they they start late on Friday afternoon and uh, they begin to wind things up so that they're home in time for the setting of the sun for the beginning of the Sabbath. But their attitude was, when is it going to be over? When is the Sabbath going to be over? Why? So that we can get back to work and make some more money, that we may sell grain. And the Sabbath, that we may trade our wheat making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the balance for deceit. In other words, they had two sets of scales that they had, and depending upon who was watching, that scale would be put up. It wasn't a fair, it was a deceitful balance. And uh, that they may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. Shall the land not tremble for this? And anyone mourn who dwells in it? Uh, All of it shall swell the river, heave and subside like the river of Egypt. And now in the middle of nowhere, here's another example, and I've given you many, um, of all of a sudden, we have an event that's going to take place, and it says and it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. All right, let's just take that. Now, if I'm just reading that, I would have no idea. Turn to Matthew 27. I really, if I was just reading it without knowing Matthew 27, verse 45 is a fulfillment Verse 45 says, now in the sixth hour until the ninth hour, that would be from noon till three, there was darkness over all the land. There was darkness over all the land as one of the judgments of the plagues of Egypt, remember? And then when we get into the book of Revelation, there's also going to be a darkness that's going to cover the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, labak that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In these two verses, we have two prophecies, Um, one from where we're studying, and the other one here is the first verse of Psalm 22, verse 1. Both of these are prophecies that are from the Old Testament. And then, go back to Amos, Without skipping a beat, he's talking locally to to them. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentations. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. And I will make it like the mourning for an only son and its end like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. i got to stop here, and I'll quote a little bit of McGee. God tells any church or any nation that if they will not hear his word after he has given it to them, he will withdraw it from them. I think we see this happening in America. Now, Jay Vernon has been with the Lord for quite a while. Um, and that this was his perception, you know, 25 plus years ago. There has been a rejection of the word of God. Is no, uh, the churches have turned. Uh, let me back up. There has been a rejection of the word of God. The churches have turned to liberalism, and the word of God is no longer preached. There has come a famine of the word of God. So many of the former great churches of this country, uh, the great uh, downtown churches, have turned from the word of God. As the consequences, many of them had to close shop, others are just barely operating, and many of them are operating in the red. Even those which have stayed open have lost their influence and have lost their drawing power. Actually, very little of the word of God is getting out in the land today. I think we are beginning to see the famine of the word of God in this country. Well, this is what most of the guys touched on in the prophecy conference. They've gone from the stability of uh, a country where everything did close on Sunday when I was a kid. And it was just the way things were. And... Um, Primarily, the guy's nailed it right on the head. The influence is um, Bill Hybels and his um, Willow Creek Church, his leadership conferences he holds once a year, sells out 7,000 just there. And when you look up at the line of speakers, you won't find any Christians. You find, you find CEOs of corporations, erbono or Condolina Rice. But nobody that is going to tell you about Jesus, but how to be successful. His mentor was Peter Drucker. Same with Rick Warren from Saddleback. Both of their mentors were Peter Drucker. And I don't know who said it. I think it was Jim Fletcher. He says, if you want to read one of the greatest books ever written, it's by Paul Smith. He'll give you the whole history of the decline that started at Fuller Seminary where he Peter Wagner and John Wimber uh, were. And Peter Drucker says, you guys want to know how to become successful? You want to know how to have a really big church and have really a lot of money? He just, uh, in the the business world, he's the guru of the the CEOs of our country. And both of these guys will tell you that their mentor is Peter Drucker. Um, And as a result... He is not interested in the word of God. He is not a Christian. And um, what you guys are doing tonight is you're taking an hour. What do you do on Wednesday night? Oh, we're studying through the book of Amos. Amos, like Andy and Amos? Or what what do you mean? Amos. And they think you're foolish. Why would you be doing that? Well, once you've had a taste of God's word, You have an understanding when the Lord says, you can't live by bread alone. You can only live um, by the word of God and eating and feasting upon it. And what we're we're the ones like Israel who are supposed to be doing the influencing. We're supposed to be influencing our society or at the very least explain, this is what's really going on in the Middle East. Why do we have prophecy conferences? Because the guys that were here are the best in the world, and we had people live streaming from all over the world and um, um, but it's rare, and it's rare years ago I could if people didn't feel comfortable at Calvary because we're casual and they maybe like things a little bit more formal, I, I, couldn't, I wouldn't hesitate to I'd list five churches just like that. Try this one out. you'll probably feel more comfortable there because they were still in the word. I can't do that anymore. I'm sure there, there probably is a, a couple that are Bible-based. I really don't know anybody else that actually goes through Genesis to Revelation. I pray that there is. But the fact of the matter is what we just read here is true, and it's applicable for the times in which we live. There is a famine for the word of God. They want Joel Olstein's perspective, how to be a better you. They don't want God's perspective that judgment is coming because we've gotten away from him. Who wants to hear that? Well, it's true. So now you've got a choice. Do you want to have somebody tickle your ears and tell you what you want to hear? Or do you want to hear the truth? And so that's really what we, with what we deal with. And what you guys are doing tonight is what I call laboring in the word. What does that mean? Well, we're going through five chapters Chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and what 's it all about judgment and it's preparing us for the future judgment that's coming and there's something about um, that i 'm doing okay i think <laughs> i didn 't know of how, how how much I had to get through all this, but um This is the thing that puts spiritual meat on your bones. And the rest, a lot of the stuff that's out there today is flush. Cotton candy. Tastes good, but there's no substance to it. There's nothing there. It's cotton. I call it cotton candy. Uh, But verse 11, behold, the day of the Lord is coming. And... um, there will be a a famine for the hearing of the word of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. And those that do find the Bible, they're sort of like the Ethiopian who was reading the book of Isaiah. And unless Philip would have, Come alongside him and says, hey, you up there in a chariot, do you have any idea what you're reading? He says, no. <laughs> he says, I need somebody to teach me. That's why when it comes to the giving out of spiritual gifts in the book of Ephesians, it says there's those that have the gift of healings and um, gifts of prophecy, and then it says pastor, teacher. Notice that they go together. Every pastor should be a teacher of the word of God. Jesus' last words to his disciples, he says, all the things that you've seen and hear me do, you pass on to them. But only those things that I've told you, you tell them. Paul said the same thing to Timothy. Timothy, you watched me my whole life. I want you to do exactly what I did. And my friend Chris Quintana, he exemplifies and models this. Um, He was in a seeker-sensitive church. And he visited Calvary, Cyprus one time. And um, he says, what is this? The guy's just standing up there reading the Bible. But it it, it so struck him that he stuck around. And the more he stuck around, the more he saw the value of it. Now, when Jack died, that would have been Chris's pastor, And he was just one of the guys in the church that was faithfully always just there taking it in. And um, he said, you know, Jack and I, our our personalities are like night and day. Nothing in common there at all. I didn't like his office, so I painted it after he died. But everything else is modeled exactly as it was modeled. So as Paul could say to Timothy, those things which you see in me, do as Jesus passed it on to disciples, he says, first of all, don't think about doing anything until the dunemos, the Holy Spirit, comes. I don't want you leaving town. I don't want you doing nothing until you have the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the one that breathes life into the scriptures. Now, I haven't asked for an amen all night. Come on, Hawking was just here. All right, that's better. Let's... Verse 13, In that day the fair virgins and strong young men shall faint for thirst, those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, As your God lives, O Dan. And that's where the other golden calf would have been placed that they worshiped. And as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. Chapter 9. The chapter concludes a message of the judgment which Amos has been delivering to Israel. Then Amos looks into the far future and gives the glorious prospect of the restored kingdom of Israel. Again, this is a theme where God is unhappy with his people, but he always says there's going to be a remnant that I'm going to bring back in the last days. So chapter 9, I saw the Lord standing by the altar. Wow, I could just... Meditate on that verse for a while. And he said, Strike the doorposts that the threshold may shake, and break them on the heads of them all. I will slay the last of them with the sword. He who flees from them shall not get away, and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, which I will show, show you on our very first day in Israel, our stop is at Mount Carmel. And there I will stretch and take them. And though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And they shall go into captivity before their enemies. And from there I will command the sword, and it will slay them. I will set my eyes on them, uh, for harm and not for good. The Lord of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell like their morn, and all of it shall swell like the river and, and subside like the river of Egypt. He who builds his layers in the sky and has founded his strata in the earth, who calls from the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth, the Lord is his name. Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me, O children of Israel, says the Lord? Did not I bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Acaptor, and the Syrians from Ker? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdoms, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. For surely I will command and will sift through the houses of Israel among all nations, as grain is sifted in a sheave. And yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say the calamity will not overtake us nor confront us. And it closes with these five promises from 11 to 15. After these severe words of judgment, comes this promise for the people of Israel. Behold, the days are coming, future tense, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains will drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people, Israel. Next year, it will be the 70th anniversary of uh, the rebirth of the nation of Israel in one day. That, by the way, is a prophecy. Can a nation be born in one day? The answer is yes, and we watched it happen on May 14, 1948. When David Ben-Gurion stood up and says, I declare this to be the state of Israel and they were immediately attacked by the, all their surrounding enemies on every side and against all odds one. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and re- inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in the land, and no longer shall they be pulled up For the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. I'm going to touch on these last five promises, and we'll call it an evening. When God puts them in the land the second time, they're going to be there permanently. These are the things God said he will do for his people. Number one, he's going to restore the Davidic dynasty. Who do you think will be the king? It will be the son of David by the name of Jesus, born in Bethlehem of the house and lineage of David. He will be the ruler. Number two, Israel will <clears throat> take her place among the nations of the world. She will no longer go to the United Nations with her hat in her hand, nor, nor will she be um, shouting out Arabs. She will be a nation that is going to be blessed of God, And will occupy a place among the nations of the world. Three, in addition to this, there will be a conversion of the nations of the world. This will occur after the church leaves the earth at the rapture. The greatest conversion of Christ is still in the future. What a day that will be when God returns Israel to her land. Four, they will build the waste cities and inhabit them. Five, They will eat of the fruit of their garden and drink of the wine of their vineyards. The curse of the people will be lifted and will produce bountifully. And finally, six, the people of of Israel shall no more be puffed up, pulled up out of their own land which I have given them, says the Lord God. And so we conclude, um, Amos has nine chapters Obadiah just has one, and we'll pick up there on Sunday morning. You guys just cracked out the book of Amos. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, we read last week that you will do nothing unless you reveal it first through your prophets. Lord, you told the disciples that you did not call them servants but friends because a master doesn't tell his servants all things. But he says that he will tell his disciples all things. So we're glad, Lord, that we're not going to be in for any surprises. If people will take the time and feast on your word and make it a part of their daily diet, there is not an issue in life that this book does not contain and teach on. Primarily in the days in which we're living, when we see the rebirth of the nation of Israel, you said you will bring all Bible prophecy to pass. What an amazing time to be alive. And so, Lord, as we continue now into Obadiah in um, this book, we just pray that um, uh, you would go before us as we make our way through the minor prophets. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.